Humankind has been obsessed with what lies on the other side of death for as long as we have existed. We are wired to find answers, but life does not always operate according to our rules. Still, we are fascinated by the unexplained. It's thrilling to throw yourself into the unknown, to suspend your disbeliefs and delve into another world. Perhaps that's why we love ghost stories so much. Whether it happened to you or a friend of a friend, if it was Bloody Mary or if it was Casper, witnessed by a whole town or saved for a passing glance, we are all familiar with this other world, and we are all familiar with the stories it has to tell. When I was younger, my neighbors, three doors down from us, had a very large and very old house. It sat at three stories and was painted deep purple, but the color hid in the shadows of the great old oak trees in their front yard. After they moved out, they visited us for dinner one night. We brought up the old house and they laughed. That house was haunted, you know, I heard from the table. My nine-year-old brain was shocked at how casually this was brought up. Do you have any ghost stories? I asked. She nodded. We had a ghost living with us in the Grant Park house. A male ghost. And I'm not sure if I can explain how we knew that. It was his energy. Male, you know? She shrugged and turned to her agreeing partner. He was really fine as a roommate, so to speak. Because most of the stuff he did was not scary, but there were some spooky things that I'll never forget. One time, I was home alone, sitting in the parlor reading. The living room was directly across the hall. I heard something in the living room, just a small sound, that made me look up. And when I did, I saw a flower sail across the room. Now, I had a vase of flowers sitting on the mantel in the living room, but the only way you could get one out was to pull it up and out of the tall vase. It wouldn't have fallen on its own, and there's no way it could have landed halfway across the room without someone pitching it. There was another time, when Tree and I had just gotten home from work. I switched on the TV in the kitchen to listen to the news and put the remote control on the kitchen table, which had nothing else on it. While I was pulling stuff out for dinner, Tree was in the other room getting changed. When a commercial came on, Tree asked me to hit the mute button. I turned around for the remote, but it wasn't on the table. Where did you put the remote? I asked. She said she never touched it. She and I looked all around the kitchen, couldn't find it anywhere. We even checked other rooms and the refrigerator. And then we turned around, and there was the remote sitting on the table. Another time, when Tree was out of town, I was sitting in bed reading. It was the week of my birthday, and I had all my birthday cards lined up on the mantel. We didn't have air conditioning at the time, so I had the windows open. There was no breeze, unfortunately, but it wasn't too hot. At about 10 o'clock, I got sleepy and turned out the light. As soon as I did, I heard one of the cards fall over. Didn't think much of it until I heard a second card fall over. That's strange, I thought, because I'd been sitting there for a couple of hours reading and none of the cards fell and there still wasn't a breeze. Suddenly, I heard a third card fall, followed by a loud knock on the wood floor on the left of the bed. 
then at the bottom of the bed, then to the right of the bed, and then on the wall behind the bed. I sat straight up and turned on the light. The cards were all standing up undisturbed. I yelled out, Knock it off! And he did. Didn't hear from him again for a couple of years after that, thank heavens. Do you have any more? I asked. Of course, she said. We think something dramatic must have happened in the dining room, because from time to time at night, we would hear the sound of glass breaking and the crashing of wood on wood, like a big window crashing down, or what it would sound like if a wood and glass cabinet fell over. The sound always came from the dining room, and when we would run in to see what had happened, everything was fine. Sometimes Tree would hear it, and I wouldn't, and vice versa. Then we had a couple of friends stay a weekend with us. We didn't mention the ghosts, because we didn't want to scare them. We went to bed the first night they were with us, and while we were sleeping, they heard the glass and wood shattering sound. They were sure someone had broken into the house, and they armed themselves with a fire poker and went to investigate. They never found anything, of course, and when they told us about it the next morning, we explained about our ghost nocturnal proclivities. Of the many campfire stories and urban legends I've come across, I'd like to share one with you. It's called The Legend of the Bell Witch, and it involved real people, is backed up by eyewitness accounts, and many scripts penned by those who experienced the haunting firsthand. In the early 1800s, John Bell moved his family from North Carolina to Robertson County, Tennessee. Bell purchased some land and a large house for his family. Over the next several years, he acquired more land, increasing his holdings to 328 acres, and cleared a number of fields for planting. He was also made an elder of Red River Baptist Church. The Bells also had three more children after moving to Tennessee. Elizabeth was born in 1806, Richard in 1811, and Joel in 1813. One day in 1817, John Bell was inspecting his cornfield when he encountered a strange-looking animal sitting in the middle of a corn row. Shocked by the appearance of this animal, which had the body of a dog and the head of a rabbit, Bell shot several times. The animal vanished. Bell thought nothing more about the incident, at least not until after dinner. That evening, the Bells began hearing beating sounds on the outside of their log house. The mysterious sounds continued with increased frequency and force each night. Bell and his sons often hurried outside to catch the culprit, but always returned empty-handed. In the weeks that followed, the Bell children began waking up frightened, complaining that rats were gnawing at their bedposts. Not long after that, the children began complaining of having their bed covers pulled from them and their pillows tossed onto the floor by a seemingly invisible entity. As time went on, the Bells began hearing faint, whispering voices, too weak to understand, but sounding like a feeble old woman singing hymns. The encounters escalated, and the Bell's youngest daughter, Betsy, began experiencing brutal encounters with the invisible entity. It would pull her hair and slap her relentlessly, often leaving welts and handprints on her face and body. The disturbances, which John Bell told his family to keep a secret, eventually escalated to such a point that he decided to share his family trouble with his closest friend and neighbor, James Johnston. Johnston and his wife spent the night at the Bell home, where they were subjected to the same terrifying disturbances the Bells had experienced. After having his bed covers removed and being slapped repeatedly, Johnston sprang out of bed, exclaiming, In the name of the Lord, who are you and what do you want? 
There was no response, but the remainder of the night was relatively peaceful. The entity's voice strengthened over time to the point that it was loud and unmistakable. It sang hymns, quoted scripture, carried on intelligent conversations, and once even quoted word for word two sermons that were preached at the same time on the same day, 13 miles apart. Word of this supernatural phenomenon soon spread outside the settlement, even to Nashville, where then Major General Andrew Jackson took a keen interest. John Bell Jr., Drury Bell, and Jesse Bell, John Bell's eldest sons, had fought under General Jackson in the Battle of New Orleans. Jackson's entourage consisted of several men, some well-groomed horses, and a wagon. As they approached the Bell property, the wagon stopped suddenly. The horses could not pull it. After several minutes of cursing and trying to coax the horses into pulling the wagon, Jackson proclaimed, By the eternal boys, that must be the Bell Witch. Then, a disembodied female voice told Jackson that they could proceed and that she would see them again later that evening. They were then able to proceed across the property, up the lane, and to the Bell home, where Jackson and John Bell had a long discussion about the Indians and other topics, while Jackson's entourage waited to see if the entity was going to manifest. One of the men claimed to be a witch tamer. After several uneventful hours, he pulled out a shiny pistol and proclaimed that its silver bullet would kill any evil spirit that it came into contact with. He went on to say that the reason nothing had happened to them was because whatever had been disturbing the Bells was scared of his silver bullet. Immediately, the man screamed and began jerking his body in different directions, complaining that he was being stuck with pins and beaten severely. A strong, swift kick to the man's backside from an invisible foot sent him out of the front door. Angry, the entity then spoke up and announced that there was yet another fraud in Jackson's party and that he would be identified and tormented the following evening. Now terrified, Jackson's men begged to leave the bell farm. But Jackson, on the other hand, insisted on saying so that he could determine who the other fraud was. The men eventually went outside to sleep in their tents, but continued begging Jackson to leave. What happened next is not clear, but Jackson and his entourage were spotted in nearby Springfield early the next morning, presumably en route to Nashville. Over time, Betsy Bell became interested in Joshua Gardner, a young man who lived not far from her. With the blessing of their parents, they decided to marry. Everyone was happy about the engagement. Well, almost everyone. The entity, for reasons unknown to this day, repeatedly told Betsy not to marry Joshua Gardner. Betsy and Joshua's former schoolteacher, Richard Powell, had been noticeably interested in Betsy for some time and had expressed interest in marrying her when she became older. By some accounts, Powell, who was 11 years Betsy's senior, was a student of the occult, although it has not been proved. He was secretly married to a woman in nearby Nashville, Esther Scott, during the time he spent at Red River expressing his fondness for Betsy. According to old accounts, Powell politely expressed his disappointment with Betsy's engagement and wished her a long and prosperous marriage with Joshua Gardner. Betsy and Joshua could not go to the river, the field, or the cave without the entity haunting them persistently. Their patience finally reached critical mass, and on Easter Monday of 1821, Betsy met Joshua at the river and broke off their engagement. The disturbances decreased after Betsy ended the engagement, but the entity continued to express its dislike for John Bell and vowed relentlessly to kill him. Bell had been experiencing episodes of twitching in his face and the difficulty swallowing for almost a year, and the illness seemed to grow worse with time. By the fall of 1820, his declining health had confined him to the house, where the entity commenced removing his shoes when he tried to walk and slapping his face when he experienced seizures. Her loud, shrill voice could be heard all over the farm, cursing and chastising old Jack Bell, as she often referred to him. 
John Bell breathed his last breath on the morning of December 20, 1820, after slipping into a coma the day before. Immediately after his death, the family found a small vial of unidentified liquid in the cupboard. John Bell Jr. gave some of it to the cat, which died instantly. John Jr. quickly threw the vial into the fireplace, where it burst into a bright blue flame and shot up the chimney. John Bell's funeral was one of the largest ever held in Robertson County, Tennessee. As family and friends began leaving the graveyard, the entity laughed loudly and began singing a song about a bottle of brandy. It is said that her singing didn't stop until the very last person left the graveyard. The entity's presence was almost non-existent after John Bell's demise, as if its purpose had been fulfilled. In April of 1821, the entity visited John Bell's widow, Lucy, and told her that it would return for a visit in seven years. The entity returned in 1828, as promised. Most of its visits centered around John Bell Jr., with whom the entity discussed such things as the origin of life, civilizations, Christianity, and the need for a mass spiritual reawakening. Of particular significance were its nearly accurate predictions of the Civil War and other events. The entity said farewell after three weeks, promising to visit John Bell's most direct descendant in 107 years. The year would have been 1935, and the closest living direct descendant of John Bell at that time was Nashville physician Dr. Charles Bailey Bell. Dr. Bell himself wrote a book about the Bell Witch, published in 1934. No follow-up was published, and Dr. Bell died in 1945. The entity that tormented the Bell family and the Red River Settlement almost 200 years ago is often blamed for unexplainable manifestations that occur near the old Bell farm today. The faint sounds of people talking and children playing can sometimes be heard in the area, and it's not uncommon to see candle lights dance through the dark fields at night. Photography is especially difficult. Some pictures taken in the area show mist, orbs of light, and other phenomena, including human-like figures who were not present when the pictures were taken. Special thanks to my neighbors Tree and Lorna, and to Pat Fitzhugh.